0: Broadcast out of New York City, you're listening to Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network on Monday, August 18th, 2014. I'm Dr. Len Saputo
1: and I'm Registered Nurse Vicki Saputo. Thank you for joining us on Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network on the first and third Monday of every month from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time and from 7 to 8 a.m. Pacific Time. And remember that our shows are available 24-7 on PRN.FM and DrSaputo.com.
0: Today you'll hear Nurse Vicki's 2020 Health Tips at 20 after and 20 to the hour. And we've got another great show for you today that's going to include... Is the Ebola virus infection a scam?
1: And when do the side effects of statins outweigh their benefits?
0: And what exercise can be done for just five minutes a day that will extend life and prevent heart attacks and strokes?
1: And you have cancer? Now what?
0: Ah, yes indeed. There's a problem.
1: So what makes a pandemic, the media creating panic, people on TV in spacesuits? Really? (laughs) Is the spread of Ebola, the hemorrhagic fever, really an international public health emergency as declared by the World Health Organization? And do we really have to worry about it coming to the U.S. now that we have two patients with Ebola in the U.S.?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we brought them here, didn't we? That's how they got here.
1: (laughs) Well, we had a similar so-called emergency for the H1N1 swine flu and for SARS. And what happened with them? You know, much of the scare was to promote vaccines. And so far, we have experimental drugs that are being used for the Ebola, but we don't have an approved vaccine for Ebola.
0: Boy, that opens up a marketplace, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, you know, could this experiential drug be leading to profit from vaccines down the Boy, line? Boy, there's that just potential. Well, it?
0: down the road, that will happen if we get frightened enough of this disease, which is a terrible disease.
1: So what is Ebola, and why why is it such a dreaded disease?
0: Right. Well, it's caused by a couple of viruses. It's the Ebola virus, but also the Marburg virus. And what they do, and there are many, many illnesses that are very much like this. It range from dengue fever to viral hepatitis to a whole a concoction of What of about illnesses.
1: malaria and typhoid? Absolutely. And Shigella.
0: These all can cause hemorrhagic fevers, which means that what happens is you can have like an a coagulation of the blood inside the blood vessels. And when that happens, it uses up clotting factors. And when that happens, you have something called disseminated intravascular coagulation, which leads to using up enough of the blood's ability to coagulate that it can no longer coagulate.
1: So and you, you just bleed,
0: You bleed to death. And so it causes a whole bunch of symptoms that are that make it look it's like a horror disease. It's pretty gross when you
1: read about all the symptoms because it's, I mean, some of them are even like you bleed out of your eyes and, you know. That's
0: a common one. But I mean, it starts out, you know, in the incubation period, usually five to ten days, but ranges from two days to three weeks. So there's a wide range there where you could be infected with the virus but not have symptoms. And when it starts you're not
1: out. so contagious at the beginning either, right?
0: Not until you get symptoms. And what kinds of symptoms are those?
1: Fever, like flu.
0: headache, yeah, joint <laughs> pains, chills, and weakness. But over time, it becomes a lot more severe. And then you've got nausea and vomiting and diarrhea and a rash and a cough and stomach pains and weight loss. And you have all this bleeding and internal bleeding.
1: And organ shutdown.
0: Yeah, and you may have anywhere from 50 to 90% fatalities from this really dreaded problem. So how many? 50 to 90% of people who get this, depending on the particular infection, will die from the infection.
1: And so who are the people that usually get it?
0: Well, it's the way... And it, how it, do they get it? Well, it's transmitted uh, to humans through infected animal bodily fluids. So if you're We're around...
1: are eating it too, huh?
0: Yes. And, and you're We're looking...
1: preparing the food of those animals.
0: Yes, that's right. So what you're looking at is uh, blood, usually from an infected animal, and you're looking mostly at 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 chimps uh, at, and uh, monkeys, monkeys and pigs yeah and bats. fruit bats yeah so sometimes if you're even in caves in the areas where the these animals infected animals live you can get infected from just being there because the excrement of the animal is there
1: well you know I was in a in a foreign country it wasn't africa mm-hmm. but every place where i stayed had Bat Bats. droppings in it, yeah.
0: Well, you can't get away from some of that. I mean, it's in the environment, and particularly there. So, if you're in that area and you're exposed to this, you sure as heck don't want to come down with it because it's a terrible, but, terrible. But the disease. thing
1: is, is like, what do you do if it's somebody in your family? Because that's who you're going to have the most close contact to. Well, you do. as well as the the healthcare workers.
0: Well, I mean, look at how the healthcare workers are dressed. They dress them in oh, stuff that looks like suits. a space suit. Think you don't think that gets the attention of the public when they see that it's like wow, this is so contagious that you got to look like uh, somebody Neil Armstrong, you know, in space. But you, when
1: you put it all into perspective and you read all the numbers, mm-hmm. they're in comparison to how many people are living in Africa. What's there a billion? billion. Yeah,
0: billions. the
1: amount of people that have died from it, it was like 900 and something.
0: You're talking about really small numbers. I mean, even when you look at things l- such as the influenza virus. They're talking about a lot of the time that there are 40,000 or 50,000 deaths a year from that, which is a whole different thing. Even though that number is not accurate, those are the numbers we're talking about.
1: But it's still pretty scary. Um, but, But now why do you think that so far it hasn't spread to other countries, like on airplanes and all that kind of thing?
0: That's a really good question because if the incubation period is up to 21 days, That means that you could be infected with the virus,
1: not not
0: have any clue that you're sick, no symptoms at all.
1: And you're not contagious, though, either.
0: You're not, but you hop on a plane, you come back to California or wherever it is that you live, or Spain or uh, South America or the Orient, wherever you're going, and you should get that illness. Now, the illness has been around since 1976, at least as far as we know, and I'm sure it was around long before that. Why, then, hasn't this spread around the world to this time? It's illogical to think that the people who have the disease, who are in the incubation period, wouldn't have gone someplace else. So, what are we talking about here? So, what
1: do you think?
0: Well, if there are only nine hundred people or a thousand people so far in this epidemic in Africa who have died from it, and, and it hasn't spread to the several, rest,
1: and this is over several months,
0: yes, and it hasn't spread to the rest of Africa, let alone to the rest of the world, something's wrong with this. It doesn't make any sense. It should have spread unless there are other factors that are involved that we have no idea what they are. So basically what's happening here is we've got another scare going on uh, and threatening uh, people who are in other parts of the country. I mean, we bring these people over to the U.S. and is there a risk of that spreading? You have to say, well, maybe there is. But is there really, when you talk about the fact that people in the incubation period certainly have come from that area and spread to probably every country in the world, why hasn't it developed? I mean, well, during
1: the incubation period, they're not contagious. but then No, but when they, they get they sick, would, they yeah, are. Then they would, yeah. And
0: why isn't the diagnosis made? And even if they get the diagnosis wrong and say it's not, you know, they don't even imagine that it's that. They still have the illness, and if all these facts that we've talked about, which are are published in the textbooks about Ebola virus infections, are true, then something's wrong. So it doesn't make sense that this is the big scary virus that everybody talks about in terms of a global pandemic. It's certainly a scary disease in they're Africa.
1: It's certainly ser- scary in the areas where they're having it. and they're Well, you know, too, maybe they exaggerate it. I don't know. I'm not oh, there. I but,
0: don't think so. I think there are lots There's a lot of talking evas- about
1: Their people are scared, and they're throwing the bodies in the, in the outside because they don't want them in the house because the bodies are contagious, and <laughs> yet the, the military wants them to keep them in the house to not spread the disease. But everybody's, like, in a panic. They're so, so scared. So
0: what's happening There is an organized attempt at some level to spread panic and fear throughout the rest of the world, which will inspire some things that are fairly clear.
1: Vaccines?
0: Vaccines and drugs. We don't have a vaccine. That's scary in itself to think
1: that that would...
0: Well, if they had a vaccine that would work, I mean, that would be marvelous news. But if you look back at the swine flu vaccine, that is a total joke. I mean, we don't know. We don't have really hardly any evidence to show that that works. And we do have evidence to show that it can cause harm.
1: Well, so then what, what are about we doing? Some of these other diseases, like we were just talking about, mm-hmm. you know, like you said, dengue fever and malaria, and
0: sure, typhus and, and cholera, and, and yeah, all
1: and, those diseases. You know, even, now there's are, there's treatment for those.
0: For some of them, there is, but for some of them, there's not. But this is what's gotten into the headlines, and of course, the world is frightened of it, and the World Health Organization is talking about that this is a a potential global uh, disaster of the highest order.
1: Well, they need to stop eating monkeys and bats. Well, I don't –
0: maybe that's one of the things for local disease, but let's face it. This is first not a significant epidemic from the point of view of something just like the influenza epidemics. It's nowhere near in the same league.
1: Well, you know, there's another thing, too, that's come up. Remember with the anthrax scare, there was a fear that it could be used for for bioterrorism? Uh And I was reading something the other night about how now there's talk of Ebola being used for bioterrorism because they can dry it and save it. And now that we've got people in our country that have it.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. they don't have to have people in our country to have it. We could get it from any place in the world. You think we don't have Ebola virus in this country in the in the CDC's labs that are, yeah. you know, class four right. protective
1: uh, right. resources?
0: Yeah, that's that's already there. Is it part of a, a possible germ warfare fair tool? You bet it is. But we're not really talking about that. What we're what we're f- flooded with is information to scare the hell out of people throughout the so world. Why? Well. You know, I don't know the answer to that, but you could you could make some guesses. Certainly, there's a potential to make a lot of money off that. Because now we're talking about vaccine development, research money that goes into that, that goes into somebody's pocket. You're looking at the development of new drugs, you know, like Tamiflu, which turns out to be a total farce. Yeah. And yet we had countries in the world buying billions and billions of doses of this stuff uh-huh. and, and only to find out that it was a scam. Because the pharmaceutical companies wouldn't even release the information that that they said proved that it was that it was valuable, so why not do that trick again? If it makes billions of dollars and you're in the business of trying to do something like that, why not?
1: You know, some of my other thoughts about this that I in my reading and mm-hmm. on the news and so forth, there are, um, these people that are unfortunate enough to get the Ebola, they have to put them in isolation. But with this panic and with this scare, Mm -hmm. some of the hospitals are closing. Sure. The the healthcare workers are getting sick and they're Mm -hmm. quitting. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're canceling flights. The Mm -hmm. people are are fleeing to other areas. It's a
0: local disaster in sections of Africa. End of story. And there's some in the Philippines. And there may be some that's a more mild form of it. And there may be some other places in the world where there is minor uh, there is a minor epidemic. it's not active
1: in the Philippines right now, I don't
0: Well, think. It's, it's not active really anywhere if you look at at, the, at what well, makes up these, an epidemic.
1: Except for these areas in West Africa.
0: Well, you're talking about 1,000 people, Vicki. That doesn't make an epidemic. That means that there are people who are dying, which is a terrible thing. We agree with that. And that we do need something to try and deal with this. But there are 1,000 other illnesses that take precedence over this.
1: Well, right now... It's in the news that we need to be prepared and we need to, you know, you know, get our water and our food and our flashlights and batteries yeah, yeah, and medicines yeah. now. But, you know, all those well, things do are that things that, anyway. that we should do anyway. Yeah, right. I mean, we live in an area where there could be earthquakes sure. or some areas where they get typhoons and hurricanes. Or flash
0: floods. I mean, all flood, kinds of whatever.
1: things. Whatever. So it's good to have that anyway. Um, it's too bad how sometimes when there is a disaster. No, like,
0: a lot of people not you know, prepared.
1: That The stores start... Run out of supplies, oh. or they start charging more and all that. But what could people do to prevent themselves? I mean, if you lived in an area like this, what what could you do?
0: Well, there's not much, really. I mean, you want to stay healthy first and make sure your immune defenses are strong. You want to stay away from uh, being exposed to people who are sick. They should they should definitely Wash be
1: quarantined. They
0: should be quarantined, uh, and you wouldn't want to eat or hunt. Uh, monkeys or other other uh, animals that might be infected with the virus. I mean, you don't want to visit caves that are underground in the mines of Africa, for example. In this country, you don't even have an issue. In fact, you go to a place like the Mayo Clinic, they don't even test for it because there isn't any Ebola in this country. And again, that's hard to believe that there hasn't been the opportunity for spread. If it was just an infectious disease by itself, and we were concerned about the spread of the virus in this country, Uh, I I mean, it would be because there were cases here, but there aren't cases here. So there's something more to getting this infection than meets the eye. It's not a simple infectious disease. Otherwise, it would be a pandemic today.
1: So we don't need to panic in this country.
0: Well, it's been around, we know, for about 40 years, not quite that far that we know of. And it hasn't spread yet. And we've had airplanes, uh, you know, taking people around the world for uh, that whole time. So,
1: so how do you explain always, it? So it's always good to be aware that there can be germs anywhere, anytime, whatever.
0: Oh, and yeah. prevention
1: always includes a healthy lifestyle to build up your Number immune one. system. Number to
0: one. To try
1: to reduce your environmental toxins. Sure. And that includes even things like your skincare products. Everything. And... and eating foods that don't have additives and preservatives. I mean, mm-hmm. just think about even food poisoning. We have a friend that, that almost died recently from oh, food yeah. poisoning. Uh, I well, mean, she just massively hemorrhaged.
0: Well, you know, about 25% of the population every year or two winds up with an infection from food poisoning. It's that common in this country. But
1: her food poisoning was so bad, she lost about three or four pints of blood.
0: Vicki, there are about 5,000 people in this country that die from food poisoning every year and and
1: hundreds people don't of, take it seriously enough
0: well what can you do you know where do you get food poisoning It's from poor food handling or people who are infected with something that are working with the food
1: well, I'm gonna a lot talk, of that you can't yeah, and control i'll be talking about some of that in my in my next tip oh, <laughs> you right. have to read labels and be careful of where your food comes well, from well you
0: do your best you know you go out and you have a potato salad at a picnic and it's full of salmonella you're in trouble you're not going to know that that's infected you go to a restaurant where they haven't uh, done the kinds of things that they should do to prepare the food and store it properly, you're you're in trouble. I remember my son went to a uh, some kind of an event that was a public event, and he wound up eating some chicken. He was in the hospital for a week with giardia, I mean, and really sick. So when one out of four people wind up with food poisoning every year, you're looking at a big number. It's a huge problem, and five thousand deaths is the tip of the iceberg. And hundreds of thousands of people who are sick enough maybe to go to the hospital. So it's not a small thing. But this Ebola thing, I mean, now you—you you know it's, it could be a food-borne. It is a food born disease to an extent. Mm-hmm. We know that it its common spread is not from droplets. It's not from somebody coughing well, on you. Well, it can be because you of would the think secretions. It would, you would it's think so. From
1: bodily fluids. Yes, that's
0: true. But it, it hasn't been spread like some diseases are spread airborne wise, like measles, for example.
1: Yeah, there's a lot more cases of measles in here we have vaccines for measles.
0: Measles is a a thousand times or or more than that, ten thousand times more lethal than Ebola virus is in terms of numbers of people in Africa who are dying. So that we should start with things like that, if we really want to make a change here. Instead of these scare tactics it's you know, that you know. You see somebody in a space suit and they're talking about people dying and uh, putting know, people and in the streets. I and then they're like, oh, and, and
1: they're in the United States now. And so it will be a problem. And they something and, you know, and they get so panicky.
0: Right. Now, I don't think it's a good idea to be spreading that around. And we certainly should avoid all the things that we can, just as, as uh, personal hygiene is concerned. But I don't see us really being concerned about an epidemic of Ebola virus in this country, or any other country for that matter, besides where it already is.
1: Well, I have something else that i just like to bring up um, on this topic. Okay. And it's about taking care of people. Because I think that there's fear and care, and there's fear and there's compassion. Mm. And when people are afraid to take care of somebody, mm, how sure. can they... Somebody needs to take care of them.
0: Yeah well that's right well these, are the, it. In, it was these your, are the people these are the people in or suits, your loved one yeah
1: yeah but a lot of the people are running away now you can't blame them for running away because, because there are some things that are beyond
0: them. your control now if you're a mother and, and you have a child that's sick you're probably going to stay with that child. you're not going to throw them out you know, out of the house
1: yep, and you're probably willing to give up your life for that child
0: And that's what it might take in that setting and a lot of healthcare workers have had to go through things like that. Uh, and so it's. I mean, that's the way it is.
1: And the other thing to be aware of is that to to air is human. So a lot of times, this is how this is spread: is if there's an error, sure. or somebody makes a mistake, or they prick themselves with the with the needle, or
0: they reuse the needle because they don't have enough needles to go around. That's a real good way to spread this disease. It's even spread so through sexual intercourse. They, it's an S T D yeah. you can get it for about two because months. Because that's after the you,
1: secretions.
0: That's a secretion. That's right.
1: Well I'm just surprised that they would reuse a needle if they, you know, were in the healthcare profession, they would know better well, than Well they, they know do better, that.
0: but they're looking at the benefits of what's in that needle too. So I mean you give an antibiotic to save somebody's life. Anyway. You're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Lynn Saputa here with Nurse Vicky, and it's time for Vicki, your first 2020 tip on why it's important to check food labels. And when we come back, we'll be talking about when do the side effects of statins outweigh their benefits?
1: It's very important to check your food labels. You know, there's a big company called smithfield farms it's the largest producing farm in the usa and it was sold and just it was sold to china and the hogs are still raised here but they're slaughtered and packaged for sale there before being sent back here sounds sort of like the ddt thing doesn't it (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, that's right.
0: You can't have it in this country, but you go ahead and, and buy fruits and vegetables where DDT was used in other countries and then re-import them.
1: And we send the DDT there. Well, yeah. anyway, it's the same with a lot of the chickens, Jeez. because they can sh- be shipped there. But then when they come back, all that needs to be labeled is that they were raised in the USA, not that they were processed in China. <laughs> oh, and the China slaughter and processing, you know, the standards, they don't have standards. they are they're, they're not nearly equal to what. Our requirements are here, mm-hmm. and then there's starkest tuna, and it's now owned by Korea, and it's in conflict with U.S. concerning quality and safety and records, and uh, Korea refuses to, you, you know, to have our standards, and we need to also be aware of this tilapia fish that's from China, mm-hmm. on top of the bags it often reads farm-raised. And then on the bottom in small print, it says China. So you have to read all the way down to the bottom and look you know, underneath and all the small print because they have filthy conditions that are, that are reported overseas. And some foreign workers have to wear masks because the food is so rotten and filthy. And many of their fish on the fish farms are, are fed raw sewage every day. And they raise this filth. Put some food coloring and some flavorings on it, and then they ship it to the USA and Canada for us to consume and to eat and to give our families. And there's no uh, food and safety inspectors. Jeez. And then, the the green giant frozen vegetables. Those are from China. The jolly green giant. Ho ho (laughs) ho. The joke's on you. (laughs) So never buy grocery store garlic. Unless it's marked from the USA or Canada because the other stuff is grown in people's dung or even worse than chicken poop. And China is the largest producer of garlic in the world. The USA is next. So buy U.S. garlic. And only buy local honey because a lot of the honey is shipped in huge containers from China and then it's repacked here. And then there's a a flu, cold medicine called Cold FX. And it's full of fecal bacteria. What? And you have to... Watch out for packages that say prepared for, packed by, or imported by because there's a lack of mandatory labeling, especially the produce. This is so hard to even believe. So you need to go for the farmer's markets as often as you can do. Right. And you might wonder how it's possible to ship food from China cheaper than having it produced in the U.S. or Canada. But you know what? If it is a little bit cheaper, spend a little bit more and buy the healthier brands because it really is worth it. And there's some things to be aware of, like even, you know, Costco, they sell canned peaches and pears in plastic jar mm-hmm. that come from China. Oh. And, you know, the same with some of the mandarin oranges. You just have to look at the bottom and, and, and look at the labels carefully. And most of the frozen fish products that come from China are into or Indonesia, the package will say uh, Pacific Salmon on the front. But you need to look for the small print because most of them come from fish farms in the Orient where there are no regulations on what's fed to the fish. And the Chinese feed feed the fish by suspending chicken wire crates over the ponds and the fish just feed on the chicken dung. Yum, (laughs) yum. Oh, jeez. We were talking earlier about uh, having... uh, uh, food poisoning. Mm-hmm. Well, if you search that's the true. internet about what the Chinese feed their fish, you really would be alarmed. They feed them growth hormones and expired antibiotics from humans. Never buy fish or shellfish that comes from Vietnam, China, or the Philippines.
0: Wow, that's quite a statement according to this article. You according
1: read. to this article. Also, check those little fruit cups because uh, most of them are packaged in China. And if something says it's made in China or PRC, uh, choose another product or just don't take it at all. And you'll be amazed at how dependent you are on Chinese products and and what you can do without. So we don't need the government to stop this trading. We can just do it ourselves by not participating. Just don't get the product or spend a little bit more and and get a substitute.
0: So when you read the ingredients label, start with the small print.
1: Yeah, start with the small print (laughs) and and the last ingredients or whatever. There you go. Okay, anytime a big money-making drug is criticized, you can bet that big pharma will fight back. Now, recently we reported on a couple of studies that were published in the British Medical Journal on the severity and frequency of dangerous adverse effects from taking statins and the high risk of taking them routinely if at low risk for cardiovascular disease. Right. Well, then there was a big hullabaloo claiming that this information was incorrect. Yeah, sure. So what action did the British Medical Journal take, and what did they find?
0: Well, the, first of all, they published an article. It was fairly a fairly great article. And what they did is they reviewed a study that was done. that was called a cholesterol treatment trialist collaboration, which looked at lowering the standards or lowering the criteria for allowing a statin to be used to treat somebody to prevent them from having a heart attack they're talking about people who have never had a heart attack now. So we're looking at primary prevention. In that setting, you have to look at what group you're talking about. If you're talking about people who have a family history of heart disease, who smoke, who don't get any exercise, you may, have, you may be able to take a, uh, a good stance here that makes some sense. You, you might, but I think you're always going to start with lifestyle. So when you're looking at people, say, for example, women who are young women who have an abnormal cholesterol, but they don't have anything else wrong with them, about 23,000 of those women would have to take a statin for five years to prevent one heart attack death. <laughs> now, that's hardly worth it. You look at the smoking group that's overweight, that has type 2 diabetes, etc., etc. the numbers change a lot. And that's what these people who published this article in the British Medical Journal were talking about. Were talking about. And they have a point here, and they said that the side effects of statins occur in about 18 to 20% of people, which means one out of five people who takes a statin is going to probably stop taking that statin because they're having some kind of problem. And the people who are criticizing the article, I don't know who they represent, actually. I don't know if, they're, if they have affiliations with the pharmaceutical industry or not, but I'm very suspicious that they do uh these people are saying well that number isn't correct it wasn't documented properly and it shouldn't have been used so they wanted to have the the editor of the british medical journal retract the articles and say that they were garbage well they they what they did is they went ahead and they they got an independent review board that had no conflicts of interest and and for and then they reviewed this topic, and their conclusion was that the article stands.
1: That the first report was right.
0: Exactly. Because they
1: wrote a lot of things to say that it was incorrect.
0: Well, I mean, and I
1: was thinking that a lot of people probably saw that and thought that it was incorrect, and they might not have seen the follow-up one that showed that it actually was correct.
0: Yeah. Well, there's but they enough. To
1: some people. Well, there was
0: enough hullabaloo about it that I think the public is more informed now. You have got to keep in mind that the public. Uh, is getting wise about the dangers of drugs and, and the pharmaceutical industry. And we've been very vulnerable to ads in the past, but we're waking up. I mean, look what happened in California just about a year ago when they passed what's called Prop 26 to allow GMO to be in food and unlabeled. I mean, what kind of moron would be uninterested in what they're eating? I mean, you should at least have the choice of knowing it's there. But our brilliant voters voted against that and said, no, they don't have to tell us because well, there's that, nothing to worry well, about. Well,
1: had pretty effective marketing.
0: Well, that's what they I'm had talking about.
1: They a lot of money to market that. Yeah.
0: That's what we're talking about here. I think that I would be very surprised if Big Pharma wasn't involved in what happened here in some way because they have a lot at risk. And so that's what we're talking about.
1: You know, I think it's always good to mention what the statins are whenever we talk about them because a lot of people are on statins and they don't even know it. Because, you know, things like Lipitor and Crestor and Mm -hmm. Mevacor and Provacol and Lescal. There are more, but those are a few of them. And then some of the, what do you call them, the generic names? They end with statins.
0: Yeah, that's right. Well, that's that's why they call them statins. But the question you have to ask yourself here is is can you believe the data from the pharmaceutical industry on the side effects of the drugs? Because that's where this information comes from. And, of course, that answer is an obvious, why would you believe them, to be honest, all of a sudden? So I would be very suspicious if that that's not true. And the other thing I would keep in mind is that there are a lot of side effects of the drug that occur without causing symptoms, meaning you're using up your reserves uh, in some way because there's a toxic effect of the drug on some system in the body, but no symptom from well, it's
1: it. It's using up your wellness buffer.
0: Exactly. That wellness buffer that you have starts to disappear, and it becomes a real problem. Well, we could go on for this for a long time, but I'm afraid we're out of time because it's time for a, a network station break, Vicki. So,
1: and we also have a lot more information about this on our site, drsaputo.com.
0: Right. So we'll be right back with more Prescriptions for Health Radio and be talking about... What exercise can be done for just five minutes a day that will extend life and prevent heart attacks and strokes? Stay tuned. Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Saputo here with Nurse Vicki. Walk,
1: walk, 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 skip, 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 run, 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 Want to live a long and healthy life? Run! Yeah. Indeed. Yes, run! <laughs> and you get similar benefits in preventing death from any reason and especially from heart attacks and strokes. All you need to do is run a minimum of five minutes and it doesn't even have to be fast. <laughs> the trick is to just do it.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it's, I think, an oversimplification for when you're doing things in general. For most people, that's really true. And what we're measuring here is our ability to do the best exercise that will give us the best return for the amount of work that we do. And what I'm talking about is how well do the energy packets in our cells, called mitochondria, use that oxygen that we take in? Are those mitochondria, which actually we have about 15 pounds of in our body, which is the battery that runs the human organism, that 15 pounds of battery changes depending on how we use it, meaning if we don't use much, we lose it. If we use it a lot, it bulks up and it may move to 20 pounds or 25 pounds. And we'll be able to use oxygen more efficiently to make the energy that we we need to be able to run our bodies.
1: So tell us about these studies, about the running for five minutes.
0: Well, basically what they're saying is that if you run just a few minutes a day at a slow speed, it reduces the risk of death from cardiovascular disease compared to somebody who doesn't. And this was published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. Up until now, according to this study, it was unclear as to whether or not there were health benefits below the level of about 75 minutes a week of vigorous intensity activity, which is what's recommended by the World Health Organization and by many organizations in the United States. Well, this study looked at 55,000 adults between the ages of 18 and 100 over a 15-year period to see if there was a relationship between the amount of exercise that they did and their longevity and their risk for getting heart attacks and strokes. And what they found was is that 24% of the participants reported running as part of their leisure time activity. So it was a surprising amount. One person in four did that. And compared with non-runners, The runners had a 30% lower risk of death from all causes and a 45% lower risk of death from heart disease or stroke. They lived about three years longer.
1: So, you know, I thought it was interesting where they said in this article that more running isn't necessarily better. That just didn't seem right to me.
0: Well, it actually is. It depends on who you are. When you measure what I call mitochondrial energy production, okay, so those energy packets again, and how well they function... For some people, you'll get more conditioned from a slower kind of exercise. So, for example, if somebody's really out of shape and or they're obese, uh, walking is about the best thing for them to burn more calories to lose weight and to condition themselves so they can do more exercise. Now, an elite athlete isn't going to do that. They're going to do interval training where they will do exercise uh, at a pace where they're not stressing themselves a whole lot, but say running at, at a moderate pace, and then every couple of minutes or so, they'll go at a maximum extent where they're just huffing and puffing and get their heart rate to go from. Is that
1: interval training?
0: Interval training is that. So maybe your heart rate goes from a hundred when you're just run, or your normal heart rate's at sixty to seventy. You exercise to a certain rate uh, that's moderate exercise, maybe a hundred to one hundred and ten or twenty, and then you exercise really hard. You get it up to as high as one eighty. If you're a young athlete who's fit or maybe even 190 or 200, you can do that if you're an elite athlete and you'll get the best conditioning from it. But if you try to do that, if you're deconditioned out of weight and overweight, it isn't going to work out. Well,
1: it certainly seems worth the effort of five minutes anyway. Oh, either way. You can do five minutes.
0: So the conclusion that they made is a good one. And that's it. Some exercise is better than nothing, and when you look at the benefits from this, it's worth it.
1: Well, they were talking about running, but I guess any aerobics would kind of fit into that, huh? Of
0: course, yeah. I mean, their study showed that those people that ran less than 50 minutes, fewer than 6 miles, and slower than 6 miles an hour, only one or two times a week, had a lower risk of dying, and they had less of a a problem with uh, cardiovascular disease uh, than people who didn't do anything.
1: You know, too, not long ago, we were talking about an article that showed how important it was to be active during the day, and it's not enough to just do like your your morning exercise, your mm-hmm. morning run, or mm-hmm. aerobics, or, or walk, or whatever yes, it happens to right. be, and that it's good to to keep moving during the day, not to just be sedentary and lying around and saying, well, I did my exercise, now I'm going to come home and vegetate. Right. And another study now just That was, just a, came that was out. a
0: very interesting study because you wouldn't think that would be true. You know, you go out and you run your five miles, you think everything's pretty cool. And then the rest of the next uh, 14 hours, you're sitting behind a computer doing nothing. Your risk for getting a problem is higher than you would think.
1: So maybe it's better instead of just doing a whole hour of exercising to get up and take little walks and have it add up to an hour during the day. I don't know. Well, it
0: depends on who you are and what you're trying to get.
1: Or to do both. <laughs> well, well,
0: I think you just don't want to go from one extreme to the other for a prolonged period of time is what that study was about. Well, there,
1: and Anyway, there was another study that just came out this week that was suggesting being physically active and and not sitting as much.
0: Mm-hmm. Reducing
1: obesity, which seems pretty obvious.
0: Well, it's true. And, and I think I don't that's know what, why they
1: bothered to do that study. I well, mean, it seems like you know that if you're just going to lie around, that it's more conducive to putting on weight than if you have a higher metabolism and you're moving around more.
0: I, th- I think there's a lot of mystery about exercise and what's the best form of exercise because you have to talk about what group of people are you referring to. If you're talking about elite athletes, you're talking about doing well, really different. hard interval training. I mean, look at how the well, football and basketball teams work out. We're talking about
1: extending your life and, and not, not dying of heart attacks and strokes. And well, you're talking about <laughs> the
0: average person who does a little tiny bit of exercise but is not really motivated to do a lot. Those people who do a little bit of exercise do a lot better than people that don't. We know that. And there's a study about 15 years ago that looked at the couch potato who didn't do any exercise at all, and they exercised for one hour a week, and they really repeat. They really did the study that this article is talking about then because they found that morbidity went down and mortality went down.
1: Just from anything.
0: Just from anything. But,
1: you know, it's just that it's not enough to exercise every day. We need to have an active lifestyle and not be sedentary the rest of the, li- of the day.
0: That's true, too. But I know
1: that sometimes, personally, once in a while, like, I'll have an active day of exercising, mm-hmm. you know, maybe. Maybe I take an extra long walk or Uh after I go horseback riding or whatever it is. And sometimes I come home and I have more energy. And other times I come home and I'm just wasted. I'm just really tired from doing it.
0: Well, things vary. You know, we have moods. Uh, Our energy production varies. Maybe we're coming down with a cold. Maybe our oxygen utilization in our mitochondria that I was talking about is not so good that day for some reason. Mm -hmm. It may be something we ate. Maybe there was some toxin in in the food that we consumed. Who knows what it is? Maybe we
1: didn't get enough sleep. Sure. Maybe we didn't eat the right food Maybe there's a little
0: more stress. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of things. Or maybe you ate before you went out and exercised. You don't want to do that.
1: Oh, you don't. Well, I usually like to have a little something.
0: Well, a little something's one thing, but if you have a meal, go out and try and play a tennis match, you're going to be eating oh, the yeah. meal a second time.
1: <laughs> well, the other thing is, is that <laughs> that all your blood goes to your stomach to digest it, and it comes out of your head. So,
0: well, maybe there's you some truth get to that too. Because well,
1: sometimes people get kind of hypoglycemic. Yeah, that may
0: be. So. Well, that's possible in some people who are prone to that. Yes. So that maybe the type two diabetics, or maybe, but maybe not so what we're looking at is let's be careful about making general statements you have to know what group you're talking about and how they what kind of exercise they need and in our office what we do is something called a bioenergy test where we actually measure mitochondrial oxygen utilization and its efficiency and it's a t- test takes about an hour and a half and then i can tell you how much and what type of exercise to do and at what heart rate and also tell you a lot about how, where you're conditioned and whether or not you have a chronic disease.
1: So it's all individual.
0: It's all individual, but not every office has this. In fact, we may be one of the only people in Northern California that have the machine and use it for clinical uh, purposes. Anyway, uh, it's time for uh, your 2020 health tip, Vicki. So you're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Sabuda here with Nurse Vicki. And when we come back, you got a tip on What? Smelling farts may be good for your health. Where would you find that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. And when we come back, oh, jeez. And when we come back, <laughs> let me out of here. <laughs> We're going to come back talking about you have cancer. Now what?
1: Oh, man. Did you really have to do that? Oh, give
0: me a break. <laughs> Give me a break. Oh,
1: boy. Well, next time somebody at your office lets out a silent but deadly emission, maybe you should thank them.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah, right. Thanks a lot.
1: (laughs) A new study at the University of Exeter in England suggests that exposure to hydrogen sulfide, that's what your body produces as bacteria, Breaking down food, causing gas, could prevent mitochondria damage. We were just talking about <laughs> mitochondria. That's right. Yep, smelling farts could prevent disease and even cancer. <laughs> ah. Well, the study published in the Medicinal Chemistry Communications Journal found that hydrogen sulfide gas in rotten eggs and flatulence could be a key factor in treating diseases. It could be a healthcare hero with significant implications for future therapies for a variety of diseases. Yeah,
0: right. I'm sure that's going to go over big. <laughs> <laughs> while <laughs>
1: hydrogen sulfide gas is harmful in large doses, that's the study' right. it's su- a toxin
0: <laughs> for a good reason. <laughs>
1: the study suggests that a whiff here and there has the power to reduce risks of cancer, uh-huh. strokes, heart attacks, yeah, right. arthritis, and dementia by preserving mitochondria. So next time somebody passes gas, instead of giving them a dirty look, smile and say, thank you. Yeah, right. Let's go play covered wagon. Yeah, right. <laughs>
0: oh, geez. nothing sacred, is it, anymore?
1: <laughs> well, know. thanks
0: for that, Vicki. A little humor goes a long way.
1: Well, we all know somebody who has or has had cancer.
0: Mm, for sure.
1: So cancer affects all of us, and everybody fears getting it. Yep. The big C is a dreaded diagnosis. For sure. Some people are in shock, and they can't even believe it. I have a friend that was mm. just pretty much diagnosed with it, and she says, I don't have any pain. I didn't have any symptoms. Yeah. She's kind of like
0: How could that attached happen?
1: to it, like this can't be me. You well, know? well, she
0: just found out about it. A lot of people, when they first find out about it, they are in shock. And it's a huge thing, and they can't think straight. And first thing they think of is they're going to be dead before they know it, and they're going to have chemotherapy and radiation and surgery, and it's going to be a...
1: pain, and they're going to lose all their hair. And and
0: sometimes that is what happens, but not all the time, for sure. I'd say the vast majority of the time, that's not the scenario.
1: But what happens is that that's the first place that their mind goes. Of course. And there's so much anxiety in in waiting for the results of tests and things. This Mm -hmm. is why... Healthcare workers need to be really sensitive to that and get the results to the patient as soon as possible. Like if you can get it to somebody on a Friday, don't make them wait till Monday. Oh, for sure.
0: Know? Oh, I, that's and they right.
1: worry about their loved ones who, and who's going to take care of them. They have so many questions, and most people don't have positive thoughts about it. It's it, because oh, it's no. a dreaded Certainly disease. Certainly, at the beginning. That's right. So if you or a loved one is diagnosed with cancer, you might say, "Where do I start? Do, do I need to?" to rush the treatment? Can I trust my doctor? Is it yeah, wise always. to go the alternative route or to just do conventional treatments? There are so many questions.
0: Well, that's right. And and so start with the first one. Uh, do I need to do something now? I mean, is there a big rush? I've, I've seen doctors say that I had one patient. Well, about, we
1: were trained that when I was in nursing school. You've got to do it like yesterday.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, maybe that is what they trained you for. They They told some things to us that were kind of like that. But some doctors, they get right on their patients. Now, I had a patient about 10 years ago that had breast cancer, and he wanted her to go to surgery that same week. And I just called him and said, I don't know what you think you're doing with this person's hardly ready for surgery. They're in a terrible state of depression. They're freaked out by what happened. They need a little time to figure out what's going on. And he kept saying, well, maybe the cancer will spread. And I said, there's no data to show if you do it this week or a month from now, it's going to make any difference. So I'm canceling this surgery. And he was upset, but my patient really appreciated
1: it. Yeah, because I've heard that many times. You need to do it right away. And and we know what can happen if somebody's really anxious and they end up having surgery. Then they can end up having complications. Remember that news reporter? What was his name? Pete? Um,
0: oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, he didn't have cancer. I forgot what his no, name was. No, he is. had
1: to have a hip surgery, but he was so scared about it. He right. ended up dying. Yeah, right. On the operating a, table.
0: Right. He went to the hospital the night before and said, Pete I Wilson?
1: can't. Pete Wilson? Pete Wilson.
0: That's who it was, yeah. He was a news reporter for, uh, I think it was uh, Channel a 7. major channel. And uh, that fear was a terrible thing to, to go into surgery with. You should never take somebody in that setting and, and take them to surgery for, especially an elective procedure. You know, even not when in the
1: night before in an emergency room exactly. because of anxiety attack.
0: So there's a lot of time that needs to be spent to educate the patient. And you're really dependent upon your doctor to guide you, but can your doctor really teach you what you need to know in a short period of time? And that answer generally is no, because usually most doctors don't know if they're not an oncologist, at least the mainstream approaches that are best for the particular cancer that you have. So now you're going to meet a new doctor who's a specialist in cancer, the oncologist, and you're at the mercy for the most part of what they think. And they'll give you options. And so you could do this, you could do that, you could do that. But their mind is pretty much set most of the time that this is the best treatment and that's what they want you to do. But everybody's different. And so it's important to individualize treatment for each unique situation and each special patient because a lot of the time what's right for one person is not right for another.
1: Okay, so one of the original uh, questions is, is if you are diagnosed with cancer, where do you start? Mm. One of the things that I'd like to say is that it's really good to pick an advocate, some f- family member or a close friend, mm-hmm. to go with you to your doctor's appointment because right. you're going to be upset, you're mm-hmm. going to be distracted, and you need somebody to be paying attention sure. to you.
0: And maybe you... record it. You know, Bring a recorder with you and ask the doctor if it's okay to record the session.
1: Because not, you forget not, these things your or your get friend, it wrong. Have your friend take notes. You know.
0: Well, a recording is the best. It's what I do in my office when I see a patient who has cancer or any any disease that's complicated, and uh, we we make a recording of it. And every new patient always gets a CD. Of course, you
1: might not know that the doctor is going to tell you that either when you go in for your appointment.
0: Well, right. to take a,
1: to be prepared to take. Well, it's a not recorder. a bad
0: idea when you go to any new doctor to take a recorder with you if they don't make a, a CD themselves, and most don't. But I find that very useful because people, they forget. And when your mind is freaking out and you've got a new diagnosis, if you do know that's what the situation is, then it's, it's, it's really difficult to listen and retain what you've heard.
1: So at least take somebody with you, mm-hmm. or, your, you know, or your spouse or your, your adult child or whatever it is, mm-hmm. and you need to ask if you can depend on your doctor to guide you. You know, do you know this doctor very well? Is Mm -hmm. it just that you like him? Mm
0: -hmm. If
1: you like him or her, does that mean that they're good too? You know, not always.
0: Well, you may want to get a second opinion. And the other question is, can your oncologist, if you're going that route to start with, which almost everybody does, are you going to be able to trust all the advice and information that they give you?
1: I mean, do they, and are they aware of other choices that might be complementary alternatives?
0: Most of them aren't and are not open to that. And so you wind up getting fragmented care that's just from the perspective of one discipline.
1: And could there be any conflicts of interest?
0: Oh, there are conflicts Some of interest. Some doctors
1: make a lot of money off of giving chemotherapy, for example.
0: Absolutely. About 25% of the income of the average oncologist a few years ago was from the sale of the, of the chemotherapy drugs. And it's no surprise that they're always wanting to use the new ones that are still on patent because the percent of profit that's made is a lot more than one that's old that's that's off Uh, no longer uh, under the patent.
1: The other thing is, too, is that many doctors are nervous about suggesting other things because of the laws in California, for example. What are the laws in California?
0: That's a problem. It's a felony in the state of California by some of the laws that are there to do anything other than surgery, chemotherapy, or radiation as a treatment for cancer. And so uh, we're in legislation now in Sacramento trying to pass a bill to allow doctors to be able to do any kind of treatment that they want so long as they don't interfere with mainstream therapies and the patient doesn't suffer from the treatment that's given, which I think is a fair thing to do. But the problem is, see, is you can't go to anybody who, well, not anybody, but hardly ever can you find a person who can do both mainstream chemotherapies and do complementary and alternative therapies. Usually, when you run out of things to do in the mainstream, the doctor puts you in hospice, says, go home, do the best you can, you know, get your affairs in order because you've got three to six months, we think, to live. As opposed to saying, maybe we should try something else that's outside of my discipline that includes a complementary and alternative therapy. There are a lot of energy techniques that are out there now that are very interesting that over the next few years... Are going to be coming into scrutiny, and and there's going to be some research done. There are ways to use infrared light and to use magnetic fields uh, to try and, and change what happens to cancer that are unproven today, but have some potential in the future.
1: So you've gotten a diagnosis of cancer. Mm uh, where do you start? I mean, do you start with juicing and diet and artemisinin or methyl jasmine or peaches or vitamin C? I mean, like there's so many things out there to choose from. Where do you start? How do you know where to start? Is there, how do you find an integrative doctor to help you to do this?
0: Yeah, well, that's right. You may have to go out of state depending on your state. And what I would do first is I would get the opinion of a good oncologist. I want to know what the mainstream therapies are, not that I think that research is so solid. I'm fairly convinced it's not
1: if you want to be able to weigh all the
0: well you you choices. don't know that the research that's done on any of these drugs is accurate because you have to know the details of how the study was done. You have to really know the people who did it to get a good idea of of how honest it was. A lot of the time the pharmaceutical companies are sponsoring these studies and then they interpret them after the good scientists do the research that they do and they publish what they want or they don't publish an article because it didn't come out the way they wanted. And you can't operate that way, but you're stuck with it. But I would nonetheless start with it. The main reason would be is I think there's some good things in in mainstream medicine, in chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery that we should be looking at
1: As a rule. And depending on what type of cancer you
0: have. Well, that's for sure. And then we should be looking for other approaches to add to it or do instead of, depending on what your situation is. And there are lots of places where you can get that, but a lot of it's out of the state for California or out of the country for some other things.
1: And then, too, depending on how far advanced the cancer is... Well, I guess you need to ask is it is it too late to do? Well, anything? is it ever
0: too late if you have a treatment that's going to do some good things? I don't I don't I don't know. I mean, obviously you get to a certain point. Well, it
1: depends. I'm talking about the type of treatment that you that you choose. Mm-hmm. Like if your cancer is very advanced, yeah, is, not it, do is surgery. it worth it to yeah. do the surgery yeah, or no. the radiation or the chemotherapy well, that's or right. is it better to give a try with some of the herbs
0: or uh-huh. There are a lot of things to add to what's happening. Here's how I manage patients with cancer. I will put together uh, in some situations like I will be doing in a week from now, I will be putting together a cancer healing circle where I've got an oncologist, a radiation oncologist who I I think a lot of, and also four other people who do complementary alternative therapies, one of which is a patient who's a doctor who's undergoing integrative approaches to treatment. Mm-hmm. The patient will be part of that panel. I will interview them. In fact, you can look forward to a video that will be put in drsabuda.com within the next month uh, that shows what happened during that conference so that you can see what can be done. And maybe uh, if that video is spread widely enough, people will get the idea that what we're doing doesn't make much sense because what we're what we're accomplishing is is a turf war between who's going to treat the patient and then we argue about whose data is good and in general We have to work together to do the best that we can to create a treatment program that's specific to each person, to the kind of cancer they have, the extent of it, and what their personality is like, and and how that fits into their whole life story. It's not just a matter of being objective and scientific, which you can't really be anyway, with the kind of data that we have, either in, in mainstream or in complementary and alternative medicine.
1: And sometimes it's more about healing than curing it.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you're if you're sick enough, you have to do what you can uh, to, to heal and not just treat the symptoms. Well, we're at the end of the show, so we're going to have to stop and want to remind you that we're back to talk about what's new in the news and health. The first and third Mondays of every month on PRN.FM and DrSaputa.com from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 to 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Prescriptions for Health will also be available 24-7 on PRN.fm.
1: And if you enjoyed today's radio show and you'd like to have more information on the topics we discussed in video and free access to more than 2,500 audio and video files, click on Health Headlines on the DrSaputo.com homepage. And remember, a healthy lifestyle is the most powerful healer in the universe. So if you want to be well... Pay attention to the style in which you live your life.
0: Take care, and we'll see you next time.